Uh, this forum is mainly uh, composed of a panel discussion, uh, which is jointly chaired by Professor Nick Bisley and me, myself. And our panelists include, as uh, Professor Dewar just mentioned, uh, Jeff Raby, uh, the uh, former Australian ambassador to uh, China, and Lisa Murray, a uh, reporter of uh, the uh, prestigious Australian uh, Financial Review, and also uh, Professor Ho Yue, currently Vice Dean of School of Foreign Languages of ECNU, and, and also an alum, uh, alumni of La Trobe University. Professor Ho is the foremost, I should say, uh, expert of Australia-China relations, not only in China, but I should say also internationally. Now, can I invite the three panelists and Professor Bisley to the stage? Thank you, Chen. Uh, my name's uh, Nick Bisley, as mentioned, and I'm uh, the director of Latrobe Asia. Uh, and it is fantastic to be back here at ECNU, uh, one of Shanghai's most beautiful university campuses in what is, in my view, without question, China's um, best city. Uh, when we planned this event a few months ago, uh, the main idea that we had was essentially to take the occasion of the Australian election in July as a sort of jumping off point to thinking about the opportunities and challenges facing the Australia-China relationship. Um, but little were we to know that the new cycle would make uh, the discussion today so pertinent. Uh, 2016 has been a surprisingly interesting year in the bilateral relationship uh, and we are extremely fortunate to have such a fantastic panel to kick off our conversation um, I will very briefly introduce them, uh, and then each of them will speak for about 10 to 12 minutes uh, in the order in which I introduce them, and then we'll have questions and answers from the floor. Uh, Jeff, on the, my far right, and that says nothing about his politics, um, Jeff Raby was, as mentioned, Australia's ambassador to China between 2007 and 2011. He is now the CEO of Jeff Raby and Associates, a Beijing-based business advisory firm. Uh, he is also a member of the Latrobe Asia Advisory Board, and perhaps most importantly, uh, as the VC flagged, he's an alumnus of Latrobe University with economics degrees at the undergrad, mastergrad, and doctoral level. You could say he's a kind of Grand Slam alumni. Uh, Lisa Murray is uh, the Australian Financial Review's China correspondent and unusually for a, a foreign correspondent based here in Shanghai and presents, I think, some of the most interesting and incisive uh, reportage on Chinese politics that you can read in the Australian media. Finally, Professor Ho Minyue is... Uh, I hadn't realised he'd be moved up the um, academic greasy pole. He uh, Ho was the head of the department here at ECNU and is now the vice dean of the faculty. Um, and it is without question... Uh, he is without question China's foremost expert on Australia, its foreign policy and Australia-China relations, uh, and I say that without any qualification. Uh, uh, Professor Ho is also an alumnus of La Trobe University, having completed his PhD in international relations in my home department, the politics department. So um, without further ado, uh, Jeff, take it away. Okay. Thanks, Nick, and Professor Dewar, thanks for having us here. It's great to be here, uh, especially among so many uh, La Trobe uh, uh, alumni, uh, lovely seeing so many wearing their jackets. That's great, uh, great sight from where we're sitting here. Nick invited me to speak a bit about Australia-China relations, and uh, in his lead-in, uh, he could, it, it couldn't be truer that uh, uh, this has really hit the news cycle, and uh, I think uh, it'll be uh, on top of everyone's mind. That certainly people are talking about it 
in Australia at, at a level in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. What I'd like to uh, do is just run through a few of my perspectives on this, but talk a bit more about um, how the future relationship might might look and where that might go. So, uh, firstly, uh, it is true we've got a, a, a bunching of uh, of issues at this particular time. Overall, I think the relationship is very good. Uh, there's a lot of shared interest uh, that provide great deal of um, of uh, substance to the relationship. Uh, and not just uh, not just uh, trade and and, and investment. Um, China is important to Australia for everything that we want to do in the region and beyond, be it uh, climate change, uh, global economic management, uh, security and peace and security in the region. Similarly, we play uh, a big role in those things that matter to China. So there's there's a lot of substance to the relationship, but occasionally, and it happened on my watch when I was ambassador. In 2009, you get a, a bunching of issues and a great deal of public discussion and media attention. And um, in 2009, you may recall, we had the, the Stern Hu case. Uh, Stern Hu was arrested here in Shanghai uh, on charges of corruption. He was the Rio Tinto representative. Um, a lot of tension in the relationship. Our prime minister at the time said a number of unfortunate things uh, uh, in public uh, in that year as well. And it seemed as if the relationship was in a downward spiral. But by the end of the year, the Chinese realised that they had so much, the Chinese side realised it had so much more at stake in this relationship that Li Keqiang made a very uh, quickly uh, decided trip to Australia and basically put a floor under that downward spiral. Uh, there was a joint statement that came out of that visit, and that has served the relationship very well uh, up until now. I would note that the Prime Minister, who, before he became Prime Minister, uh, had some very nuanced and, I think, balanced things to say about China the, and, and, and the Australia-China relationship, uh, really hasn't, until this last week, said anything much at all um, and left it to the Foreign Minister. But I think in the last week, he has actually said again, with issues like South China Sea, um, that uh, uh, his position on the South China Sea is more balanced and nuanced than what we have heard uh, from the Australian government for the best part of 12 months. So it's good to see him coming back in the play in terms of giving some leadership to the relationship. And that's one thing I'd say generally what's missing in the relationship. There hasn't been a clear articulation by the most senior levels of the Australian government uh, about what the relationship means for all of us, both sides, there is no real narrative coming out of the government about the relationship. So just quickly, some of the things that are going on. Um, there's been a rejection of a couple of, um, of uh, applications for major uh, Chinese direct investment in Australia. The Kidman Station before the election, straight after the election, uh, State Grid's uh, desire to buy 54% of uh, National Grid. Uh, my view on this, and the comment I wrote, um, I quoted to Lisa, and she quoted me, was that what we're seeing is the first, um, the first uh, protectionist elements post the election, because the composition of the Senate is very, very difficult uh, for the government to, to work with, and um, the Prime Minister uh, needed a lot of support from the National Party when he displaced the previous Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, and so I think we're seeing around this issue more, more of a populist position than we've seen for some time. But the good news is still most investment projects go through. And although the Global Times here might rail and rant about this, 
uh, Australia is still you know, quite open. Um, just going through my list of other issues, of course, uh, very strident statements from the Foreign Minister about the South China Sea and equally strident rebuttals from the Global Times in China. Um, these, uh, there's the issue of political donations is very hot at present from people in the Chinese community. And it is a bit worrying to see the Australian media uh, work itself up into such a state uh, over this. There's a probity uh, issue, which is extremely important. But I think the notion that the Chinese state is running agents of influence through what I regard as pretty ordinary types of Guangdong business people based in Sydney is, is a little bit uh, uh, far-fetched. Uh, but what it taps into is a, is, a, is a deep unease, I think, in the community about China, in the Australian community about China. It's got to do with size, it's got to do with speed of change. Um, but it's, it's interesting, it doesn't take much to create an atmosphere in which you know, some of these crazy stories can be run uh, through some parts of the media, uh, not all. Um, so look, the future of the relationship, though, is really what I wanted to talk about. And as I said, there's a good base, and we will get through this difficult period as we did in 2009 and other times of difficulty, um, such as in '96 when uh, John Howard was the cheerleader for the US when it sailed two carrier fleets through the Taiwan Straits. So, of course, that moment in history is long gone. It will never come back again. But there have been uh, a number of serious uh, difficulties in the relationship. But um, when we look at uh, what's going on in terms of China, its position in the region, um, and China's rise as great power, it, we need to have a very contemporary understanding and view, and view of what's happening in China. China has risen. It is a great power. But what sort of great power is it? And... Uh, my view is that uh, uh, China is a highly constrained great power because of uh, reasons of history. It's still an empire with unresolved territorial issues inside its border, Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan. Uh, it's it's uh, geography. It's constrained by, um, by having 14 countries on its border and 22,000 kilometres of land border to defend. Uh, but most importantly of all, and most recently in China's history, it is constrained by being utterly dependent on the world for resources and energy and all the things it needs to make it grow and maintain its prosperity. So I reject the China threat, not because I uh, assume that China may not want to be threatening or uh, may not wish to, to, to throw its weight around internationally, but because it's constrained by all these major issues, and we've seen that in the South China Sea. Whilst it appears as if China is uh, throwing its weight around, and to some extent it, it is, and it's all part of a more muscular foreign policy we see coming from China, the, um, the uh, reality is that the more China presses in that region, the more it alienates the very countries in the region that it needs to hold close to it. Uh, and also it invites the US to come back into the region Whereas China's medium to longer term strategic objective is, of course, not only to balance the US in the region, but to become the, the dominant regional power. And so that leads me to the other sort of thought, and that is when trying to come to grips with contemporary China in the region and in terms of our bilateral relations with China, uh, we need to understand and explicitly recognise that China is naturally, as a great power, uh, seeking to find security for itself in the region. It's trying to redefine 
the regional order in order to find security, and any great power would do that. Um, it's, you know, we know of the Monroe Doctrine for the United States. Uh, the US, a long time ago, defined its role and its, uh, and its security order in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, China sees it as legitimate to do something like that for itself. And therein, I think, is where Australia needs to engage with China uh, openly on these issues. We can work with China in helping China understand how its security interests are best met and how do we develop with China a regional order that reflects um, uh, China's rise in the world. A specific example, uh, China's proposal of the AIIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. That was very much uh, China making a very conscious decision to change the regional order. Um, and it could have done, and does do, you know, investing in infrastructure bilaterally with countries. What it's done on this occasion is voluntarily decided to tie itself up in a system of multilateral rules and disciplines because it's trying to change the regional order. It's not just trying to assert itself unilaterally across the region. Australia made a terrible mistake by not uh, accepting the offer to be a founding member. Uh, we managed to join somewhere after Luxembourg and before Norway, hardly major players in the Asia-Pacific region. But that shows you how confused our thinking is. And coming back to my point, that happens when you don't have a narrative about China's rise and how we have to accommodate it. It's not going to go away. We need to find a way to help China find its order in the region. He's a bit of a hard act to follow, Jeff Raby, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, thanks, Nick, for inviting me on the panel. I think it's really important to have uh, these sorts of um, conversations. And thanks to La Trove and East China Normal University for hosting this Australia-China Forum. It's such an important relationship, and I think the more we talk about it and have these types of discussions, the better off we'll be. Um, Nick asked me to focus on the uh, trade and investment side of the relationship. I write for the Australian Financial Review, which is um, generally, uh, it's a daily publication in Australia. It's business, politics, and economics, which is, I think, why um, I'm focusing on trade and investment. I've been in Shanghai as one of two China correspondents for the best part of five years. And when I first arrived in early 2012, Xi Jinping was getting ready to take charge. The Chinese economy had just notched up growth of 9.5% the previous year. The People's Bank of China was about to cut rates for the first time in four years to keep that growth ticking along. Julia Gillard was Australia's Prime Minister at the time. Her government had just blocked uh, the Huawei, um, China's Huawei, from bidding for the national broadband network. And I've got to say that every single meeting I went into when I first arrived to China, that, that decision was brought up. Australia's big miners were rolling out plans to invest $120 billion in expanding production capacity to meet what I think then was still considered to be an insatiable appetite for um, from China for Australia's iron ore and coal. And the iron ore price was trading up above $130 a tonne. Negotiations over a free trade agreement, meanwhile, were stalled. And again, every meeting I had, people told me it wouldn't be signed for another 10 years. So you fast forward to today, and uh, we have a free trade agreement. It's signed 
sealed and delivered. China's economy has slowed, but you know it's still a very reasonable uh, pace of growth, six and a half to seven percent. Australia has had no less than four prime ministers, nearly a new one every year. Um, Malcolm Turnbull's government has just blocked Chinese bidders from buying the country's biggest agricultural property, Kidman, and the largest electricity distribution network in Ausgrid. And while iron ore volumes are holding up, the price has more than halved and Australia's big miners have been slashing costs to stay profitable. So uh, uh, while I'm focusing on trade and investment, I'll also note that when I first arrived, it was all about the East China Sea. That was the, the, the major flashpoint in the region. And obviously after the July 12 uh, ruling out of the Hague, I'm writing a lot more about the South China Sea these days. So I know that you, Jeff, could probably do a much more dramatic comparison about where the relationship was when you first arrived and where it is now. But I thought that was a useful exercise because within just five years, so much has changed and yet so much is still the same. The same themes are running through the bilateral relationship. China wants Australia to adopt a more independent foreign policy, not just to follow the US blindly. Um, it also wants Australia to have a more transparent and consistent approach to foreign investment. Australia, meanwhile, is trying to pull off the balancing act of managing that relationship with its important security ally and its most important economic partner. And it wants China's investment, but it's still working out how to manage the sale of critical um, infrastructure assets. I don't think it's quite worked out how to do that. Um, and at the same time, Australia is managing the end of the resources boom and adjusting to the rebalancing which is happening in China's economy away from an investment-led, very um, de uh, resources-dependent uh, manufacturing-focused growth to one where th which is focused on the consumer and the services sector. So, you know, whereas five years ago I was writing a lot about the big miners, BHP, Rio and Fortescue, these days I write about vitamins and infant formula and, you know, companies like Blackmore's, Bellamy's and also AMP starting to see a bit more in the financial services space with their interesting life insurance venture there. But whether it be iron ore or beef or vitamins or fish oil tablets, whatever it is, there's no doubt that Australia is incredibly reliant on the Chinese market for its growth. Um, to give you a few facts and figures, merchandise and services trade with China now accounts for a quarter, more than a quarter, of Australia's overall trade. It was worth over $155 billion last year. So China is Australia's biggest export market. It takes about a third of our merchandise exports, and it's also our biggest source of imports. For comparison, overall trade with our next biggest uh, trading partner, Japan, is about half that at $65 billion. And while this is not the first time that Australia has been so reliant on one trading partner in the mid 70s, it was Japan in the 50s and 60s, I guess it was the UK, uh, I think it is. It, it, we are very dependent on China's economy and there are vulnerabilities if there are strains in the relationship about what sort of economic repercussions there could be. Um, while the trade relationship is changing, iron ore is still very much the dominant, um, uh, dominant part of that relationship. It was our biggest export to China last year, $39 billion, um, followed by gold and coal, I think, and then 
services exports like education and tourism, which we hear a lot about. You know, Australia's got more than a million tourists going to... Um, China's got, rather, more than a million tourists going to Australia every year. And this year, 50,000 international students started their courses at universities, colleges and schools. While that's the very, very fast-growing part of that trade relationship, it still pales, uh, pales in comparison. I think education-related um, uh, tr exports were five billion dollars, and personal travel was three billion dollars last year. So, so it's still really much, uh, really very much all about iron ore. Australia, meanwhile, imports a lot of telcos, furniture, prams, toys, everything from China. But, um, but it's not as important, really. I mean, um, Australian ore dominates China's imports of the raw material, but we're still only the seventh biggest import source for China, and we're only the 13th largest export destination. So, you know, it, it, is, it is sort of, Australia is very dependent on China. And um, I think the key thing is that if you look at the share of exports going to China, Australia is the most dependent of any G20 economy. So while countries like Mongolia and Singapore and Taiwan are more exposed to China, really of all the developed economies, Australia is um, uh, very focused on China. And that served us well over the last three decades. I think this week you saw that um, Australia notched up 100 quarters of successive growth, nearly um, pipping the Netherlands from their record for the longest expansion. But it, it does mean that the, the vulnerabilities are there. On the investment side, Chinese investment in Australia has grown from about, I think, $2 billion 10 years ago to $65 billion at the end of 2014. So there's been huge growth there, and that's brought up some of the issues that Jeff talked about um, with the Foreign Investment Review Board and some of the decisions it has knocked back. Um, and I, I would have to disagree with Jeff a little bit. While I do think that it is protectionism that um, is perhaps colouring those most recent decisions, I think we've got to be realistic to expect that there will be scrutiny of um, Chinese state-owned enterprise investments in Australia. Um, the links between state-owned enterprises, while some of them are run like private corporations and the Chinese corporation corporate landscape is very different to Australia, I do think that the links between the Communist Party, the government and these organisations aren't so transparent and so they, they are going to get more scrutiny and um, I think that's, that's fair enough. I do think the Osgrid decision was particularly badly handled and I think it was badly communicated and that um, doesn't bode well for future investment in Australia and I think Australia really needs to think about how it deals with those, um, those decisions. But in summary, I think the relationship over the past five years, while we've got, a, as you say, a bunching of issues at the moment, would be described as as relatively stable, though definitely not boring for a journalist um, covering, <laughs> covering the relationship. Um, one thing I just wanted to pick up on from what Jeff said, I completely agree that the, uh, the decision not to jump straight away and become a founding member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank was an enormous missed opportunity for Australia. I think that um, the argument was flawed for our reasons for not being one of the first developed econ economies to sign up, that there were concerns about corporate governance standards. At the time, China was um, 
you know, the AIIB was saying that it would, would write the Articles of Association with the founding members. So if you were so concerned about the governance structures, get in at the, at the, at the first, at the outset, and, and write those governance structures. So I really do think that was a missed opportunity. That was a chance where Australia could have a more independent foreign policy on a very good issue and a good initiative where China was taking the lead in a global financial institution. Um, and I, I just want to make that point too, and I look forward to, to picking up on some of the other, the other points Jeff made. All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Nick and Chen, for inviting me to be one of the panelists. And uh, we know that um, uh, over the past few weeks, uh, the China-Australia relationships uh, have met, you know, various you know, fluctuations. And I was uh, asked by uh, Nick to, uh, you know, to be focusing on the Chinese responses to the events recently. Uh, between China and Australia. And we know that the major two things just uh, over the past few years, one is the uh, uh, South China Sea arbitration, and the second is the Great deal. And uh, first, let's look at uh, the Australian attitudes and, uh, uh, towards China in, these, in relation to these uh, cases. Uh, regarding the uh, South China Sea arbitration, the official Ch uh, Australian attitude is uh, this is final. Uh, this is uh, legally binding, and China has to abide by it. And this is what uh, uh, Julie Bishop said. And also, together with uh, the United States and Japan, uh, these three countries, they issued the joint statement, uh, which actually uh, say the same thing, which uh, says that it is uh, final, legal, binding, and China has to abide by it. And in terms of the Chinese responses to the uh, Australian attitude towards the arbitration issue, the official response is that the Australian assertion is wrong and it will be uh, detrimental to the bilateral relations. And regarding the joint statement uh, between Australia, the United States and Japan, uh, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi very soon voiced his critical comments on this joint statement, uh, which consists of uh, several points. Number one, uh, this joint statement is adding fuel to the flame. Number two, this joint statement is against the wishes and efforts of many people in, and countries in the region to uh, defuse the tension and maintain peace and stability in the region. Number three, these three nations are different from over 70 countries in the world which either understand or support the Chinese stance. That's what uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi said. All right, now regarding the uh, non-governmental Chinese response towards the arbitration issue, there are various and many. Some can be very tough, hard, and even emotional. I just cite some. Now, one commentator said, Australia is, can only be said to be a tiger cat, not a tiger, uh, a paper cat. Yeah, paper cat and not paper tiger. And Australia wants to be the deputy sheriff for the United States, but 
that is costly. We remind you, Australia, that can be very costly. And even some commentators said the Chinese side has to take some retaliatory actions. And some suggestions were made uh, for, for the audience. As they say, if Australia is to take any military actions in the South China Sea, it can be the right target and a choice for China to teach a lesson. Well, so emotional. <laughs> That's the non-governmental non uh, uh, Chinese response. Now, regarding the Osgrid deal, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce said that the Australian block of Chinese investment in Osgrid um, is actually uh, not reasonable, and this is, uh, testifies the uncertainty of the Australian investment environment. This is particu uh, particularly discouraging to the Chinese investors, and that can be also uh, uh, jeopardizing the China-Australia relationships. And that's the official attitude. And then non-governmental views, the most shocking one and vivid one is that uh, decision helps create China-phobia. And also, this is uh, uh, this blockades win-win cooperation. And this is uh, Australian political interference in business, which can damage the bilateral economic relations. So these are the brief Chinese official responses and non-official responses to these two cases. But we can see from the uh, comments in, in, in China in relation to these cases. Some can be reasonable. Now, for, uh, 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 for instance, one commentator in Sun Yat-sen University, he said, the Australian interference in South China Sea issue, actually it, it indicates that Australia is dealing with this issue in an irritant way to China. This will not be beneficial to Australia. This is in a way moderate view. But some commentators, at least many, they simply say Australia did that, this because it wanted to show its loyalty to the United States. Many people in this way. And there are some people in China when we or when they are asked about Australian foreign policies, they will feel at loss. Australian foreign policy? Does Australia have its own foreign policy? So they will simply view the Australian foreign policy in the context of the United States diplomacy. Now, as far as uh, my understanding of these two issues I th uh, is somewhat different from the uh, general comments in Australia. As far as I can see, the Australian side, uh, its attitude, uh, the fundamental determinant to the Australian attitude this time, I think, is the, its strategic assessment about China. Now, let's take a look at the Australian attitudes and policy towards China over the past two decades. 
Within the past two, de two decades, Australian official attitude actually moves or switches between one, ambiguity, symbolism, and direct, open, uh, directly and openly on the side of the United States. Ambiguity, symbolism, directly and openly on the side of the United States. When Australia is directly on the, United, on the side of the United States, then the bilateral relations between China and Australia can be affected very seriously. And we, uh, we can see many examples of, of, of this. When John Howard took office in 1996, and John Howard was openly on the side of the United States in terms of the uh, cross-Taiwan uh, cross Strait crisis, and uh, Australia was in support of the United States aircraft carrier diplomacy towards, uh, towards China, and then affected China, uh, China's relations with Australia. And then in 2001, uh, when uh, there was the spy, uh, spy plane incident between China and the United States, and Australia was also on the side of the United States, and also affected the uh, bilateral relations. And then when, uh, when uh, Kevin Rudd took office, in, uh, in, in Australia's 2009 uh, defense white paper. China was not a positive uh, element or uh, actor in the region in terms of regional security, and also affected the uh, bilateral relations. Some, uh, some occurrences between our two countries, including Stone Hu's case and the Rio Chinaco deal. And then after uh, uh, Kevin Rudd and Julia Bishop, uh, Gillard, when Julie Gillard was paying her first visit as a PM to the United States, if you take a look at what she said in the United States Congress, she was very positive about the U.S. role in regional security architecture. And also, even she encouraged the United States to be bold. In, in, in her eyes, probably the United States was not bold enough. All right, it doesn't matter because uh, this is your attitude towards the United States, not directly involved with China. And then in 2012, uh, uh, Gillard government initiated the uh, U.S. deployment of uh, 2,500 U.S. soldiers in Darwin. This is very symbolic, telling you uh, we can create a pros economic prosperity together with China, but in terms of strategy, we are closely uh, in, in, in very close relation with the United States. Uh, we are on the side of the United States. But anyway, the uh, uh, Gillard government uh, adjusted its uh, uh, policy towards China in the late, later years, for instance, in the uh, ancient white paper in 2012, uh, 2012 and also in its uh, national security strategy in 2012. Uh, uh, 2013. Uh, the, these two documents mentioned China in terms of security in a moderate way. And then, uh, say, the, after Gillard came uh, Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott, after he assumed office, he praised Japan very much, and together with uh, Bishop, say Japan was the best or the closest friend of Australia in Asia. Okay, it doesn't matter if you wanted to praise anybody, any country saying you are my best friend in the world, okay? It, it doesn't matter. As long as you do not blame China or, or, or be critical of China. But 
The point is that uh, several months after this, the, Ch the Chinese authorities introduced ADIZ, Air Defense Identification Zone, in East China Sea. Now, if you take a look at the world, there are, apart from Japan, there are two countries whose responses to ADIZ of China was very serious. One is the United States even sent uh, B-52 bombers. And the other is Australia. Australia openly expressed that China, this, uh, uh, this action of China is unilateral, coercive change of status quo in this area. And then also affected the bilateral relations. And then we see the uh, last, the, uh, just this year, the 200, uh, 2016 Australian white, uh, defense white paper. If you read it very, very carefully, no mentioning of China about regional security is positive. This tells us that strategically speaking, Australia draws a conclusion about China, which says China is no longer willing to accept the predominantly Western rules-based order in this region. So Australia cannot be or can no longer be ambiguous. There are no ambiguity. There are any ambiguous uh, expressions regarding South China Sea issue is not in line with this defense white paper. That's my understanding. Thank you. Sure, I didn't, didn't disturb things. Um, so you can see uh, how lucky we are to get such informed um, speakers and, and incisive comments. So we've got plenty of time, a good 40 minutes or so, for questions, discussion and comments, and we're very happy to take from the floor. So if you just indicate, do we have roving microphones or are you going to have to bellow? Maybe we could take one of them. If, if Chen, if you could pass it yeah, to Diana. So if you just pop your hand up if you've got a question, um, down here for the first one. Uh, hi, my name is Charlie. I'm an uh, alumni of ACAA. So um, my question to uh, Professor Hongmingyue is that um, because I do watch the Australian news quite often and uh, we did see a lot, because after this election, we see that the Australian government has some party like the One Nations, like the Pauline Hansons, where they used to accusing of the Asians now accusing of the Islamophobia. So we will see this kind of like the second coming of the Yellow Peril of China, which from the 1900s of the white Australian policies to now, because all the news back in Australia from the time where they think about the iron laws and then the baby formulas, especially because what happened is that I used to live in... in uh, Malgrave, where last year there the issues of in Clayton, a whole warehouse about like tons of baby formulas was there and being seized by the trade government because those are destined to China. So they think, well, China has the advertised, and then they call this the new white gold 
because <laughs> like the iron ore, the gold rush in Victoria, so the Chinese coming, so that's all the negative news so on the Australian media from SBS, ABC, and also uh, this year the government which they exit the ABCs for their media parts, like fact chat. So something like this kind of hot debate, even a neutral journalist perspective, they will see lots of those things they can't expressing. So that's I agree, that kind of thing, because I do see lots of Australian side, not the Chinese side of that, because your point of view is more about Chinese side towards. Um, if, if Ho, you might want to start, and then the others might want to give their views as um, the sort of perception of Point Hanson and this sort of Chinophobia, um, how they see these things. So, Ho. Oh, you've got yours, yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, thank you for your question. And I think, you know, the uh, either Chinophobia or China panic in, in Australia is uh, uh, actually comes and goes, comes and goes very often over the past decades. But as far as I, uh, as far as I can see, I think the uh, either China phobia or any phobia in terms of for any particular power, either in Asia, uh, particularly in Asia. I think in regard uh, regarding a uh, red peril or even yellow peril in 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 the history uh, between our two countries, I think. Very often, the Australian attitude towards an Asian power, I think, is uh, decided by its gene. I, I think in, in July, when I heard one Australian commentator, one Australian scholar said, well, the pursuit for a protector uh, is within our gene. I shocked it to some extent and then uh, later on, I realized that this is, as I've said, that this, uh, the fundamental determinant to the Australian attitudes is because of a strategic assessment. But the strategic assessment is based on the gene of the Australians. So it's also a genetic choice, genetic decision. Why do I say it's a genetic decision? Now, something which is very interesting which can interest many people in the world is that China is now number one uh, trading partner to Australia. But to Australians, they will raise another question. They will connect this fact to another question, which says, well, for the first time in the world, uh, in Australian history, the f number one trading partner is not our protector. China is number one trading partner to many countries in the world. And how many countries in the world will raise this question? How many people in their countries will ask themselves this question? This is genetic. And secondly, uh, in 2009, uh, Nick, you, you actually took me to uh, the a Asia Society, and also ABC uh, in interviewed me. Uh, one ABC person he asked me one this question, say, because uh, uh, Kevin Rudd is able to speak uh, ma uh, Mandarin, so many Australians, they are worried, they were worried, so probably Kevin Rudd's uh, uh, policy can be pro-China. Uh, what comment you, you can make? I felt a little bit, you know, uh, shocked. Now, I didn't answer this question directly. I asked, I uh, raised another phenomenon in China and in many other Asian countries as well. I say, 
if one Chinese official, no, no matter how top that official is, if he's uh, able to speak uh, any foreign language, we will feel happy. We will feel happy if our president can, is able to speak English, French, or Japanese. We will never think, will our president be pro-United States, pro-Britain? Uh, why do you Australians think in this way? It is because of gene or because of some... So this, this is genetic choice, genetic feeling. Thank you. I think um, it's interesting you talk about white gold as the new iron ore. I think the thing about China is that, I mean, Pauline Hansen separately, I, unfortunately she taps into a fear of the unknown and that's very unfortunate and it's not representative of the whole of Australia and, you know, she is what she is and I'm not quite sure how she she managed to um, to, to get back into parliament, but she did. But I think on your, on your uh, point about iron ore and um, infant formula, there is a fear in China, in Australia. China is so enormous. It's the swing factor in every market you can think of. So that when there is big demand from China for infant formula, it does mean that, um, you know, enterprising people start buying it in Australia and selling it here and all of a sudden people can't get their, fa their favoured brand of infant formula at their local supermarket, you know, and it does become an issue. But I just think it's a sheer size. You've got to think that Australia's population is the same population as Shanghai. You know, we just, there's still a lot, um, there, perhaps there needs to be a lot more education about, about China, but also I think just the sheer size of China's economy makes it the swing factor in all these things, and that's where you get some of that coverage that you were talking about. Yeah, all, all uh, very good points. It makes me uh, uh, feel that really, and you see this in this current debate that's going on um, at present, is that the trust in both societies, actually, uh, Professor Hull's comments indicate, and the question itself, uh, a lack of trust about Australia on the Chinese side, and, and the public debate is, 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 is a reflection of that in Australia, that, that when, when things are good in the relationship, they're good, and we go along and chug along, we don't seem to really invest very heavily in building the depth of the trust in the relationship. And I think that really needs a lot more attention. And uh, uh, these are you know, reflected on the peculiarity of China because of its great size and, and, and uh, ever-growing wealth. Um, something that obviously Australia's benefited enormous from, enormously from and we embrace. Uh, but also the other elephant in the room is uh, the fact that uh, for a big country, a great power, uh, China's pretty much unique in its forms of social and political organisation. No country stands further, uh, that's a major country, I mean, you've got some on your borders who you know, we won't mention, but for a major country, China stands further from the global norms of political and social organisation than any other country I can think of in the last several hundred years. So that is a huge challenge for any uh, country building relations and the peoples between the, the countries building their relations. And so I've often said this, I said it when I was ambassador, that you know, it's unarguable the huge economic importance uh, of China for Australia now and way into the future. But equally it's unarguable that... Uh, we have enormous differences in forms of political and social organisation. Unfortunately, in Canberra, that uh, objective observation has become a discussion about values. 
and I deliberately not using the word values, I think it's very harmful. But again, that discussion of values, I think, comes out of a, um, a, a context where there's mutual mistrust rather than a strong basis of mutual trust. And things like this today and, and, and the sorts of things uh, uh, you're doing uh, all help to build uh, that trust. But I think that's what we need to focus on. And I think we've seen that issue play out with the debate that's currently underway around Chinese political donations, where, on, as a simple matter of fact, they're not that big a deal, but there's this real polarisation between those who think any Chinese involvement is bad, with a capital B, um, and the reverse, which is, you know, you're all pro you're all, you know, there's an American military industrial complex that's fueling everything else, and the division between the two is quite striking. So please, catch my eye. Ren. I'm Lin Xiao from Fordan University here in town. Um, I think it, it's useful for us to uh, uh, locate uh, Australia-China relations uh, in a broader Asia-Pacific context. Um, I think uh, politically, Australia uh, uh, still identifies itself as a part of the West in terms of uh, uh, political system values and, 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 and so on. Uh, and geographically, Australia is a part of the Asia-Pacific region and uh, it is increasingly integrating uh, into the Asia-Pacific uh, Asia region, or Asia. Um, and there is a, there is a tension uh, between the two. Uh, uh, apparently, some of the troubles uh, come from uh, this tension. So I wonder whether the panel uh, uh, can comment on that. Second, uh, I think well, since, uh, one of the panelists was mentioning uh, South China Sea, uh, I think Australian warships ha have the right uh, to sail uh, in uh, well, well, where international law allows including in South China Sea. But it would be a very big move uh, for Australia. Uh, um, and the question is, what signal uh, Australia uh, would like to give uh, to the region and, 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 and to the, uh, to the uh, world, especially given what have happened, have been happening uh, uh, in the recent years. Um, so I hope uh, Australia would be careful uh, in terms of uh, sending uh, our ships to, to South China Sea uh, and so on. Thank you. So there's sort of two issues there. Um, I, and I'd like to invite all the panellists to weigh in, either or both, one relating firstly to that big Australia as a culturally Western country, physically in a part, part of the Asia Pacific, and the second is Australian warships in the South China Sea, small matter of. Um, Jeff, do you want to, we want to start there and come back this way? Um, on the first one, this has been a perennial discussion and debate in Australia now for as long as I've been involved in foreign policy, it's over 30 years. Um, uh, and, and there's been different formulas. I mean, there was a, one formula under Gareth Evans that described Australia as the odd man in. So we were in Asia, but we weren't of Asia, as it were. 
that was rejected by Prime Minister John Howard, and I think this is still the prevailing view, that Australia doesn't have to choose between its history and its geography. But what I find perplexing in this discussion and, and, and the question itself is that um, I sent a WeChat out some weeks ago, a photograph of an intersection in central Sydney, and I put the label, I, and I labelled the, uh, the picture as outside um, uh, David Jones' department store, uh, the world's most livable Chinese city. <laughs> because everyone at that intersection was Chinese. And so, I mean, Sydney is effectively a Chinese city. Now, there is some pressure over house prices and so on, but not a lot, um, really. And, and I think that adjustment to us being part of the region and welcoming immigrants and welcoming tourists and uh, students um, is, is, is very strong. Uh, and, and I think you need to be careful not to overstate it. Just in the South China Sea, it's, it, it's a fact that Australian warships have, for decades... Uh, sailed through the South China Sea. The issue is the eight-mile uh, territorial limit, and that's what the US has sought to test. Um, but our Navy, so we're told, will, has been and will continue to sail through the South China Sea. And uh, I think we need a bit of clarity around the whole issue of, um, of freedom of navigation and distinctions between um, uh, territorial areas and maritime zones and so on. It's a extremely complex and confused issue. But I think so far the Australian government's, uh, in practice, adopted quite a, um, uh, a nuanced and pragmatic approach. I think the problem has been that the Australian Foreign Minister, reading her DFAT brief as a good lawyer would, uh, has made much too strident uh, uh, observations and comments and criticism. Uh, and it's less in the substance of what Australia is doing but, and, and much more in the tone of the foreign minister. And I, I urge you all to look at the prime minister's statements of the last few days on this. It's much, much more nuanced and balanced than, um, than the uh, foreign ministers has, have been. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, while if you look at what Julie Bishop has said, um, there's been quite a strong Chinese response to her comments in that she... Uh, has been quite strident, but Australia has been under a, a lot of pressure for a long time now to join the United States on their freedom of navigation operations, and by that I do mean go going closer within the um, the eight miles. But it hasn't. So, you know, while while Australia is talking tough, I guess. They're, what they're actually doing suggests that they are taking a more moderate line on the South China Sea than I think sometimes um, it appears. Yep. Uh, th uh, I think I needed to uh, respond to Professor Ren Xiao's one of uh, one of his questions about the Australian's geography, uh, uh, the geography and the culture, the contradiction between the geography and the culture of Australia. Uh, the question reminds me of uh, the uh, Australian choice, or even plural choices, or responses to this dilemma, if, if it is a dilemma for Australia. Now, in Australia, we can see the worries in 
any society, uh, any community, any society. One, uh, the, the worry is the Asianization of Australia. But point is, how can one country be Asianized if it is not an Asian country? Now, some commentators, some analysts in Australia, they even published some books entitled in this way. I myself, in my collection, I got a one book entitled The Asianization of Australia, probably written by Stephen Fitzgerald. I can't remember if my memory is good. I, I read it already, and I also asked Stephen Fitzgerald to sign it during the FASC uh, conference. And then we also see the Australian side, together with the other international community members, to create the idea of Asia-Pacific. So I'm now not part of Asia. I'm part of Asia-Pacific. This reminds me of the dilemma, the difficult choice of Australia. So sometimes Australia will see face, East, uh, face Asia, or facing Asia, or facing East is facing our future. That's Shout, uh, that's the slogan of, uh, I think, Paul Keating. And when Paul Keating stepped down and John Howard took office, John Howard tried to make adjustment, saying, facing the East doesn't mean turning our back on the West. That's what John Howard said. So, fluctuates from this end to that end, this end to that end. It's really a dilemma. That's really an embarrassing choice for Australia. But anyway, for many uh, people in China, we expect and we hope that if this uh, uh, contradiction or dilemma is a kind of um, perceived disadvantage, why can't Australians work to make it, to turn it into advantages? Between the Western nations, Western civilizations, Western countries, and Eastern nations. Australia has been successful in some aspects. For instance, APAC process, very successful. So Bob Hooke is said to be the APAC founder and re globally recognized, and also recognized in China very highly. And I think Australia can be more constructive and helpful if it follows this way. point that Professor Ho just finished on. It's something I, 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 when I first came as ambassador in about 2007-8, well I came at the beginning of 2007, but over those earlier years of my time, um, the Chinese foreign ministry would always be saying Australia used to play a leadership role in the region. Uh, APEC was always cited, but so was the brokering of the Cambodia peace agreement. We worked jointly with uh, Indonesia to do that. We created the first, uh, with Indonesia, the first uh, regional forum on people smuggling. Um, and by about 2007 and 8, the foreign ministry here was saying, what's happened to Australia in the region? Where is your, your leadership role? We need you because you do things that we can't. In those days, the Chinese felt that if they proposed an initiative, uh, everyone else would oppose it, particularly the United States would, would be working behind the scenes to block it. Um, and it's really taken until most recent times with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, 
that China has felt they've done other things. For example, there's a Shanghai uh, cooperation organization, but that was driven out of the needs of uh, security inside Central Asia. But, but it's only recently that China's felt the confidence to actually do, its, do the things for itself in the region. But it is interesting that we have been, Australia's been missing in action now for, for well over a decade in terms of creative, active, middle power diplomacy, something that we did pride ourselves on. Yeah, the, the one example of them trying to do it was a catastrophic failure in the Asia-Pacific community effort because it was extraordinarily poorly executed by um, Prime Minister Rudd. Tiger. Tiger Zhang from uh, SIAS, uh, local um, foreign policy think tank. I have two questions for both Lisa Mary and, and Jeff each. Okay, first for Jeff, uh, it's, uh, I'm happy to hear you say that China's restrained power, but it's interesting to note you didn't say a self-restrained power. So, to what extent do you think China is self-restrained in its external behavior? Um, especially with uh, the Xi Jinping administration. The second question is uh, a follow-up to Professor Renshaw's question on the South China Sea. Um, I guess most Chinese would agree with me to say that uh, the uh, f freedom of navigation operation is a self-fulfilled prophecy. It's, um, it's a false proposition in the first place. Um, by creating this China threat, the U.S. is only using the wedge to come in militarily. So uh, my question is, before, say, the year 2011 or 12, did Australia really feel the threat from China in the freedom of navigation in the South China Sea? So th uh, those are the questions for you, um, Jeff. And for Lisa Mary, um, it's also very reassuring to, to hear you say that the Australia-China relationship are very stable over the past five years. So. Would you say so for the next three or five years? Would you elaborate a little bit on the possible destabilizing factors, including China's slowing down economics, for example, or the growing public opinion in, in Australia, anti-Chinese investment and so on? And the second question is about the regional economic integration. So as a member of both the TPP and RCEP, TPP meaning trans uh, Pacific Partnership and RCEP is Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Uh, what do you think Australia should uh, put more resources to, especially in the context of the current uh, problems TPP is facing in the United States and Japan? Thank you. Well, I, I like my two questions. So great, thanks. Uh, I, I think very clever question. The first one uh, was I saying China was a constrained superpower or a restrained, that's implying, I think, that there's external forces that's restricting China and uh, uh, containing China. Uh, uh, Ch China, I mean, on the last point, it, the fact of the matter is China is 20 or 30 years away from being able to militarily challenge the US in any sort of conflict. And that's for one, that's one very, very good reason why I always been sanguine about the prospect of conflict in the South China Sea. It's, it's sort of not going to happen. Um, and the other element is the, the depth of um, the relationship between the US and um, China. Uh, what people, and so often in Australia, both at the official level but absolutely in the media, don't ever seem to get 
is that there is enormous depth to the US-China relationship beyond anything most people in Australia could ever imagine, be it in, in, in academia, in business, uh, at official level, at every level. Um, so, uh, and, and, and Washington and Beijing, I mean, it's interesting. Um, uh, Lisa reminded us five years ago, the, the, the big security issue in the region was East China Sea, shock horror. When I came in 2007, it was the Taiwan Straits, it was Taiwan. And, and that, that very difficult problem over Taiwan was really managed by Washington and Beijing through the dialogue and exchange and understanding. It's, it, it's, the other element, I know I've digressed a bit, I'll come back to it, but it's sort of contextual. The other element we miss in Australia is that China and the US are superpowers and they're great powers and great powers talk to each other as great powers and they see the world through the lens of a great power, we're not. And we, we, we have enormous difficulty in imagining how the world looks from the perspective of a great power. So, um, is China constrained or restrained? It, it, it is by the facts of uh, the imbalance in, in, in military force in the world today, but that's changing and will change. So it's not a, a permanent constraint, uh, uh, restraint. But I argue China's a constrained power by things inherent to China. As I said, it's still an empire. It's got uh, enormous territory to control and defend, uh, borders rather, enormously long borders. And all the countries on the border, all of those 14 with the exception of Pakistan, China has had conflict with or has had very difficult relations with. And that's not going to change. And most important of all, of course, is Russia, where there's very, very deep and will always be very deep uh, mutual strategic mistrust. Uh, but thirdly, is China is utterly dependent on the rest of the world for resources. Up until the mid-1970s, China was self-sufficient in crude oil. Today, it's by far the world's biggest importer of crude oil. So it is constrained by things internal to China, even though there is a big military imbalance that still exists in, in, in the world. Uh, on the second one, um, no, I think the South China Sea has been of, um, of concern uh, for, for quite some time to Australia. Uh, I mean, China started to reassert itself in the region around uh, 2006-07. Uh, but our concern was probably less over freedom of navigation or wasn't expressed in those terms uh, as more uh, trying to ensure regional stability and that China um, conducted itself with respect to its regional neighbours in a, in, a, um, in, a, in a peaceful and constructive way. But the South China Sea, every decade seems to come up uh, as an issue uh, of, uh, of strategic concern. So I'll, ju I'll just qualify my characterization of the relationship as stable. I think more recently it's been very tense and very strained, but if you were to look at the five years as a whole, I think we'd look back on it as fairly stable, which is, um, which is quite a feat actually, given we have had four Australian prime ministers, but things keep... Um, keep ticking along. In terms of the destabilising factors, it's uh, obviously the two big ones are um, what happens in the South China Sea. Australia has taken a very consistent line that China should um, abide by the international court ruling. And so depending where that goes, I think um, we'll obviously have a strong bearing on the Australia-China relationship. And also we haven't spoken yet about you know, the possibility, if, if there is still a possibility that Donald Trump gets elected, well, that changes everything 
you know, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was speaking to someone within DFAT and they were saying that's what they're spending most of their time on is, is trying to assess what a Trump presidency would mean for the Australia-China relationship. So I think we need to think about that, that as well. Um, but, um, and, and the other one on the, on the investment, I think you're right. I think, you know, it plays a bit to what Jeff was saying about we do have a, uh, a weaker government. There are some protectionist elements within um, the, the parliament that the government are perhaps playing to, and it will be interesting to see what happens with crucial investment decisions coming up and how they're treated. I think the problem with Australia's foreign investment um, uh, review board is the, or, or re regime is that we have this clause where the treasurer can um, overrule a decision based on the national interest. It's not very well explained. He doesn't have to very uh, he doesn't have to explain himself. He just has to say it's in the national interest. And what that does is politicise decisions and it um, injects a lot of uncertainty into those decisions. And so I do think that has the potential to be a destabilising factor. I'm not sure if the uh, bidders for Kidman will have another go. Maybe that's that's uh, um, the next test um, or whether, yeah, I'm not quite sure what investment decisions are coming up, but that, that will be interesting in terms of that. On the trade, look, to be honest, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the expert on TPP and RCEP, but I do think TPP is having a lot of problems at the moment. And um, I do think Australia has tended to focus on its bilateral trade negotiations um, and so important for the Australia-China relationship is whether the China-Australia free trade agreement starts to really bear some fruit. It, it, it's in writing now. Um, but you can have agreements to reduce tariffs. It's harder to, um, to, to sort of police what goes on beyond that, you know, whether, um, uh, whether customs processes make it more difficult for products to come in and how that affects trade. And so I think um, we really need to see what happens with the free trade agreement and whether that lives up to the hype um, of that. So sorry I can't offer more on the TPP, RCEP. I thought we'd get through a public event without using the T word, but sadly, we, every single thing we've done this year of one form or another, somehow he comes up it's like some sort of whack-a-mole, you clonk it on the head and it pops back up. All right, any other bids? Yeah, at the back there. And here, and then we're... And Whilst the microphone's going, I will, an anecdote about Australia-China culture. My children, their favourite food is steam, steam pork buns. Not only do they like it so much, they've become steam pork bun snobs. So that certain kinds of steam pork buns are deemed not good enough. So it's 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 each it's it's etched into the the next generation. So go ahead. Uh, hello. Uh, my question is: What do you think of the industry like migration? Students go to Australia to study. Study. Uh, the trend will be by affecting Australia-China relationship. Thank you. Any, anyone want to tackle that one? It's of, of clearly important, high high interest to all of the audience. So what's um, what is, what's your sense or assessment of the impact of um, the, the movement between Australia and China of, of students, um, particularly either migration in Australia or to a movement back and from? I, I touched on that, that earlier. 
Uh, you know, when I describe China as the mo uh, Sydney as the most livable Chinese city in the world, uh, Australia is very open, very open, very welcoming. Uh, Chinese have been in Australia since the 1840s. There's uh, Chinese representatives in state parliaments. There's now in the federal parliament. Um, it, I, I, I really don't think it's an issue. If, if, if it comes up in one particular way, is usually uh, Sydney or Melbourne house prices, and usually in one suburb, but that's no different than Vancouver or San Francisco or any other number of places. But uh, uh, it, it, I think it's one of the great strengths of the relationship that there is that strong presence of Chinese people in Australia. Yeah, I'm, I might beg to differ slightly in the sense that I, I, I feel, I mean, someone on, on one side of the migration student experience desk, as it were, is that the numbers of students that move between Australia and China is firstly highly asymmetric. Chinese students come to Australia, the reverse doesn't happen. So I think that's a big problem. Um, but the other is, I think, if you look at the people-to-people -people relations, um, the, the links of are, not, are nowhere near as deep as you would expect given the numbers and over a long period of time. I mean, very large numbers of, of Chinese students have been studying in Australia for a very long period of time. And yet I think there isn't the level of depth of connection that, that one might expect. And I think partly the reason is that um, often the students from China who come to Australia are highly concentrated in small numbers of fields so that rather than being a sort of across the whole range of things that a university will teach, they'll be in just a couple of areas. And so I think that, that limits the effects of that kind of um, cross-pollination, if you like. And that's something certainly, you know, product, pr product promotion here, that's one of the things that Latrobe Asia we're trying to do, firstly get more... Australian students to go to the region and particularly to China uh, and also to get students who are from the region when they're at the university to, to integrate um, or, or to connect into the community a little better. Um, Chen. Yeah, I'd like to uh, comment about that, about uh, uh, the uh, Chinese immigration and also the uh, Chinese students. I think actually uh, in Australia there has been a kind of uh, um, very unexpected <laughs> worry about the Chinese presence in Australia, uh, like uh, the recent uh, um, uh, 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 scare campaign, should I say, about the uh, Chinese donation. Uh, people have been talking about, for example, like Senator Demisteri uh, uh, receiving money from a Chinese businessman. But actually, uh, what seems actually targeted is actually the, the senator. But actually, um, the real target is China. So I think actually, maybe, I'm not sure, you know, uh, there has been a kind of misunderstanding, mistrust. Jeff was saying, actually, against the Chinese community, against the Chinese presence. Um, it can be a, a kind of like a political presence, but you know, it's a, a very much in disguise of a business presence, or even now educational pre presence. I read from a, a financial review, Australian financial review, about this kind of a, a Chinese uh, business people and also Chinese tourists acting as uh, spies for China. Okay, uh, Bob Carr actually yesterday actually was uh, in the Australian weekend. Actually, Weekend Australian was actually uh, repudiating this kind of uh, 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 thinking as a kind of uh, very much ungrounded. Uh, we won't be actually expecting Chinese tourists to be uh, taking pictures of strategic Australian targets while viewing Bondi waves. You know, <laughs> this is actually quite a uh, quite an unexpected thing. So I really think actually uh, Chinese migrants, Chinese students going to Australia, they can promote good understanding. If actually some of them will be staying in Australia, uh, 
uh, mixing into the uh, a broader Australian community, that actually will be quite proactive, quite conducive to better uh, future for this kind of a more multicultural, more uh, 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 interacting uh, community. Thank you. All right, I think... Um, uh, sorry, uh, oh, quickly, uh, Jeff, and then we'll go... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Allegiant, you want to go, sorry. I, I just want to give you one, one little anecdote, uh, if I may. The, the Prime Minister's son um, is married to uh, a, a, a local Chinese woman, the Prime Minister's son speaks fluent Mandarin and the Prime Minister collects contemporary Chinese art. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, it's too easy to stereotype Australia as well. I, I was just going to weigh into the political donation scandal um, and I didn't write the article that you were referring to. But, um, but just in terms of... I don't think people see the political donors that have been written about as representative of the Australian-Chinese business uh, Australian-Chinese community. Um, I think we ran a story on the weekend about um, people within the Australian-Chinese community also being concerned about the political donations that were being given by these business people. So I think it's very important not to, to conflate those two. I do. Um, and I think, um, I think that there should be scrutiny of donations and I, you know, I think it's important that we do that and I think, um, uh, I think Sam Dastyari should have resigned. I think what, what he did was, um, was, was a resignable offence from the from bench, if you like. And just to pick up on your point, I just wanted to say just a, um, a, a personal anecdote, I guess, similar to the pork buns. I've got two daughters and when uh, their mandarin is actually very good, it's much better than mine. And when they go back to Australia, I'd like them to continue to study mandarin. And I think one of the big failings in Australia is that we put out the Asian Century white paper and talked about it, mandarin being you know, much more um, available in education and there's just not enough focus on that and I can't find a school which teaches Mandarin, you know, I'm finding it difficult to, to find that at primary school. So that's an interesting thing where I think Australia needs to invest a whole lot of more time and resources to, um, to develop that, I think it's... All right, uh, just here. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, this year uh, the, the UK had a uh, referendum and leave the European Union. So to some extent, I think uh, in today's world, uh, the regionalism and uh, protectionism or even a wave of anti-globalization have been rising in today's world. Um, so uh, my, I want to raise a question uh, that... Uh, uh, a uh, well, one person also mentioned the TPP Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, and uh, as far as I know, uh, in December, uh, in November, the election, presidential election in United States, the two candidates were very uh, positive to uh, have many anticipations to the TPP uh, before, but recently they are opposed to TPP and the main reason are uh, they, they don't want to lose their job in the United States. So my question is, uh, what's the Australian new government attitude uh, toward Trans-Pacific Partnership? Thank you. Active prayer, I think, yeah. is the... But, but the, the point about the unraveling of globalization, I think, is a very good point. And it's it's uh, it's not 
uh, just Trump and Clinton competing with each other for who can be the most protectionist. And we've never seen that in a post-war election in the United States, presidential election, uh, Brexit, and the composition of the Australian Parliament following this election is all part of a pattern. Those nutcases that have been elected to the Senate um, from minority parties, uh, they, um, that they're, they're, they're basic uh, populists who play on fears and uh, advocate protection. You know, we, we built through 20 years in the 80s and 90s an incredibly open and dynamic economy through uh, opening the economy, pulling down tariff barriers, getting rid of quotas, liberalising our agricultural sector, the whole thing. And in many ways, that, you know, that's delivered us enormous uh, growth. And as Lisa said, what is it, 30 quarters or something of uninterrupted growth. Because we opened and liberalised, we weren't worried about Chinese goods coming in or um, uh, Japanese or Indonesian. Uh, but these people threatened to wind all of that back. And uh, it's very incumbent upon all of us to stand fast against that uh, tide of uh, anti-globalisation. All right, any uh, one at the back there? Get the microphone round. We've probably got time for a f one or two more after that, and then um, otherwise the, the people in the restaurant will start getting very grumpy at us. Uh, good afternoon. I have a question. Um, I think that um, the current bilateral trade relations is overshadowed by uh, some color of protection, protection, protectionism in Australia because. Um, after the election in July, uh, there are uh, seven pro-protectionist lists in the parliament. And um, as is evidenced by the recent um, government's blockade to the Chinese company's investment. And I want to ask uh, that, do you think um, such a blockade to the Chinese company's uh, investment is out of real national security concern? Or um, Australia think China actually pose a threat to its largest ally in Asia Pacific region. So, what what lay behind the refusal? It's a very good question. Anyone want to have a first go at it? I think. Um, well, I mean, the government certainly said it was a legitimate national security's um, uh, concern. Every um, intelligence organization in the country unanimously advised them against the, um, against the decision. Unfortunately for us, um, it's very easy for the treasurer to get up and say, it's in the, the national interest and I can't talk about it <laughs> because you, you don't have security clearance to, to, to hear my argument. So actually we don't know a whole lot more about the decision. It has been suggested, I think Nick and I were talking, that the, the Sydney grid, which is Ausgrid, is more susceptible to um, security threats than previous electricity distribution networks which have been sold to Chinese investors and are owned by Chinese investors. Um, and I would also say that uh, I think... I don't have the numbers, but there's been a huge number of investment decisions made over the past 10 years, and I think only 65 against, and I'm talking thousands and thousands and thousands approved. So I, I do think it's important 
yes, there are a few high-profile decisions and they are clouding the outlook for Chinese investment in Australia, but generally, Australia has been fairly open to Chinese investment in the past. It's something like in the, it's in the 90s, the percent that gets approved. Yeah. I can't remember the exact yeah. figure, but it's, it's, it's above 90%. All right. Uh, yeah, Professor. Okay. I, I would do, uh, like to add something in relation to the... Uh, China's economic relations with Australia and also particularly its investment in Australia in, uh, in the past decade. Well, of course, uh, now, as I agree with Liz, actually. Now, if you take a, a longer view, uh, if you analyze in detail those Chinese investment projects in Australia, we can say the majority of them, over 90% of them, are successful, are, are uh, accepted. Some without condition at all, some not very many, only a few with some conditions. Of course, there will be a, a few will be rejected. But, but if you see Chinese enterprises are meeting very fierce opposition or barriers in the Australian market, if you look at the investment volume from China into Australia in these years, the answer will be different. Now we know that the, uh, the biggest Chinese investment, the volume of Chinese investment in Australia in the past years was when Kevin Rudd was the Prime Minister. That was in 2008 and 2009. Over about 26 billion US dollars, uh, Australian dollars, were approved by FERB and then dropped down to over 100 billion. And then last year, it's over 460 billion Australian dollars were approved by FERB. But uh, a small percentage of it went into mining and resources sector. Much of it, over, uh, I think over 20, yeah, over 20 billion, 20 to 26 billion went to real estate. The rest go into the other sectors. So you look at it, the uh, Chinese investment, the volumes, you, you will be able to make the judgment, your own judgment which will be correct. Um, what about investment the other way? So Australian companies coming into China, do you think, um, I mean, the scale of it is certainly a lot smaller than Chinese companies going into Australia. Do you think they're missing out on opportunities here? And also, do you think the uh, regulatory framework around foreign investment in China is, is restricting uh, Australian investment here? The perennial question, Australian investment in Asia. Um, yeah, look, I, 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 think, I think it is. I mean, if you look at um, the financial services sector, for example, um, which I know David, he's, he's, he works in, uh, I think the foreign players in China's um, financial services sector make up less than 2%. And uh, I think for a long time, um, people were hopeful that the 20% limit on the equity stakes that banks could hold in, um, in 
China would um, be lifted, and it hasn't, and so you're seeing a lot of foreign banks exit out of those investments just to pick on the financial services sector. But then again, you can see someone like AMP go into a very, very interesting joint venture with China Life, which has the potential to, to be quite a significant um, uh, earn, earner for AMP. So, um, so I think there are opportunities there. I think the changing regulations, and maybe oh, you want to talk about this, that, that does make it difficult for people looking to invest a lot of capital here. The regulations can change and change quickly and significantly, and that takes away some certainty and willingness of people to put up the capital to invest here. Uh, uh, in response to your question, I think, you know, about the Australian investment in, in China. I think years ago, when I was doing my PhD, actually, I made a lot of, I, I took a lot of field, uh, job, uh, field trips, both in China and in Australia. One time when I was uh, interviewing one uh, official in charge of um, foreign investment in China, and I asked, asked her, what about the Chinese investment in Australia and Australian investment in China? Now, regarding Chinese investment in Australia, she said, the Australian market is not big enough. Well, as far as I can see, only the state-owned, some state-owned enterprises feel interested in, the, in Australian resources, and they are able to, you know, raise the fund enough to be put into Australian resource se uh, sector. Of those private enterprises, they do not have sufficient fund. Now, regarding Australian investment in China, she said, well, we are not, Chinese people are not very familiar with the expertise and uh, advantages of the Australian side. Now, for instance, one example is when I was visiting, uh, when I was interviewing one MoffTech, the, uh, the, uh, the former uh, Ministry of Commerce in, in the Chinese government. One official in charge of the section of Australia and New Zealand, she said, well, Australia always mentions the advantages of our economy. For instance, finance. Australia, Australians are proud of the advan their you know, advanced finance system. But he, some Chinese people will say, you think your finance system is advanced, but the Chinese market is for competitors throughout the world. And do you Australians think that your financial system is more advanced than, for instance, the system in the United States, in Japan, even in Hong Kong, in Singapore? Not many, not many Chinese people know this fact. But the financial crisis in 2008 taught many people in China a lesson and made a lot of Chinese people know the advantages of Australian finance system. So we needed to go step by step. And I think things will be improved. Okay. All right, we will have to um, bring things to a close. Uh, before I pass back to Chen, first I'd like uh, all of you to join me in thanking our panellists for an absolutely fantastic uh, conversation on the topic of Australia-China relations. And, and on behalf of um, La Trobe Asia and La Trobe University more generally, I cannot thank ECNU enough um, for 
so generously hosting us, uh, and in particular for, to Professor Chen and Professor Ho for their tireless effort, um, both in front of house and behind the scenes, uh, and as well as the support of your students, um, who I know have put in a lot of work uh, to help make this happen, um, including this banner, which they, they didn't literally do, but um, that would have been particularly impressive. But um, uh, The banner was actually designed by the... Uh the, the Alumni Association, ACAA? ACAA, yes. Yep, I was about to get to them. And then I'd, I'd also particularly... Yeah. And, of course, I'd also like to thank um, the Australia-China Association for their support, both helping us with the banner um, and uh, they were front of house out there. Uh, John mentioned at the start that the Latrobe ECNU relationship is 30 years old uh, and when we set out to establish a annual pla an annual platform in which... Trobe would use its convening power to, to make important interventions in, in key issues facing Australia and China. Um, there was only one choice for a place in which we would do this, which is ECNU here in Shanghai. And um, it's, it's, I think, a testimony to the depth of the relationship that when I set, sent Chen an email asking, grovelling, um, whether the university would be um, supportive of this idea, the answer came back, I think, within five minutes on email saying, absolutely, we're thrilled to, thrilled to be part of it. So... Um, from my university to yours, thank you very much. So, Chen, um, as Master of Ceremonies, I shall throw to you. Thank you. Thank you. I think actually when uh, Nick and I were discussing about this forum a few months ago, we didn't expect these months could be so eventful, like the blocking of the Osgrid uh, deal, and the political donation uh, disputes, and also the recent Mao concert. <laughs> very, very controversial you know, in uh, Melbourne, Sydney. So these months actually really, as Jeff said, actually has been a kind of a difficult period for both our two countries. So this is really uh, the next chapter. So we really need to look into the future and be prepared for uh, maybe even more eventful uh, months ahead. But anyway, you know, uh, just as the three panelists were actually saying, Nick was saying actually, uh, the uh, bilateral relations has been proactive, has been actually going towards a kind of better future. So what we can do is actually we should promote uh, the bilateral relations in terms of politics, in terms of economic relations, in terms of education, migration, these kind of people-to-people -people relations. So as a way to uh, 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 promote our relations towards a better future. So of course I should really thank La Trobe University, thank John, thank uh, your people, thank Nick, and uh, of course also in particular thank Diana, for bringing all this, you know, into reality. When we were talking about these, you know, it was really, you know, all words on emails, you know. But really, you know, it is now materializing into this. So we're really happy and also proud to be the host of the first forum, and we will really be prepared for the second and the third forum in next year and in the future. 